a Podcast One production. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. This is the series that takes you on a trip of discovery into the world of the Australian music business from the 1970s to today. Music industry veteran Peter Ricks speaks to the legends of this industry, those who have thrown everything they've had into making a career and leaving their mark. These stories are filled with both their triumphs and their troubles, unvarnished and honest conversations with a bunch of unique, fascinating characters who Peter has had the privilege of growing up with. Here is Peter to introduce this episode's guest. There are few long-standing members of the music industry globally who have the unique ability to hear and smell a hit record. There are, at the same time, a lot of pretenders who think they know, but not many of them can show a track record of finding those neglected, unsigned unwanted recording artists who they can put in a studio with a song that ultimately finishes its journey at the very top of the music charts. Such a genius is today's special guest. Charles Fisher is one of those quiet achievers that you'll only find if you search the credit section of your next album. So from Radio Birdman in the 70s to Savage Garden and well beyond, this is a serious practitioner of the art of producing and recording hit records. They call him the Song Doctor, and with good reason. A warm welcome today to Charles Fisher. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. Good to see you again. <laughs> how did it all start for you? Where, where, where did you? How did you end up on this journey that you've ended? That you look look where you are now. My goodness. Well, I I, I started very young. You know, at the, at, by the time I was sixteen, uh, I knew what I wanted to do with my life was make records. And you know, like uh, like most of my generation, I was totally inspired by the Beatles. I did my time in my high school bands and things like that. But the thing I in, always, in Sydney in Sydney, right. the thing I always wanted to do was uh, make records. That I used to listen to records, tear them apart, try and work out why they were doing what they were doing and how they were doing it. And I, uh, all my life, that's that was it for me from probably the age of 16. That's were were there heroes in those days for you? Yeah, for me, um, for me, of course, the Beatles, they were right up there. Um, uh, I had a couple of Australian heroes. I loved the Easy Beats. I loved the, the Billy Thorpe's early records with uh, the Aztecs, like Poison Ivy and things like that. Mm. Um, but it, but re- record-wise, it really was the Beatles. They, they, were, they were my training ground. I tore those records apart yeah well for a lot of us of yeah. course I mean, unfortunately there's generations that don't even remember them arriving charlie but we will move on from that small moment <laughs> so then so you're 16 and you 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 love it but there had to be a point of commencement of of you actually being able to make a record well the, the, i i it was a, a strange journey when uh, when i finished high school uh I packed my bags, went to Europe. In Europe, I came across a Hungarian jazz rock band, and I toured Europe with them doing their live sound, which was my first foray into manipulating the dials. Wow. Um, Would this have been 
what became serious? This was what this was serious. This was serious, and this was, I guess, 1969 that I first came across them. It would have been, I guess, October 69, November 69. I remember because it was cold, mm. um, and uh, I, I fell in love with their music, and I started touring with them and twiddling the knobs and. Um, I even I even recorded with them. I had this little sound on sound tape recorder that I used to to record them. So we actually earlier than I thought we would. We leap straight into your long and fantastic re- relationship with uh, possibly the world's greatest bass player, in my humble opinion, in, in, a, bloke in, my- called, in a bloke called Jack Yozarski who, of course, was really the leader of, uh, of Sirius. Yeah, he, he was an amazing bass player. He, he, um, he, he was even offered to... There, there was a band, a guy by the name of Stevie Winwood had a band called Traffic in those yeah. days. Oh, yeah, just, just a little band. Yeah, just a little band. Tra- tra- he actually asked Jackie to play bass in Traffic. And, but Jackie, and Jackie, being Jackie, would have said no. No, he would have. He wanted to do it, but um, this is an era where we're still behind the Iron Curtain, yeah. and basically the government would not allow him to leave. Ah. So he had to. He had to decline the offer. Mm. But he was an amazing bass player, an amazing musician, an amazing vocalist. Oh yeah. I mean, James Brown needed yeah. to be nervous with Jackie around. Yeah, he 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 was um, he was amazing. So the, the the some the story the intersection with Charles and I in this story is is that Jackie uh, uh, eventually toured Sirius in Australia, which Correct. under your auspices, really, or yeah, as I, the benefactor in it all. I'd ma- I made the arrangements with the hungry. I was only I guess I was only nineteen, maybe twenty coming into my 20th year and I made the arrangements with the Hungarian government I got visas via the Australian government I spoke to promoters in Australia and got them uh, gigs before they even arrived um, and I, I was both their manager for, for a, a de facto manager really um, and their sound guy and I toured right around Australia with them So Jackie eventually became uh, one of his many uh, appointments was he was Marsha Hines's musical director for the best part of twelve or thirteen years, yes. and uh, possibly the finest musical human being that I ever knew. Um, and the, a wonderful moment when, after twelve or thirteen years of of pouring out the same songs time after time after time, he visited me in a, in my hotel room halfway through a ninety five date tour. <laughs> shut the door and sat next to me with a cigarette in his hand. He said, Peter, with a little tear in his eye, I just can't play this shit anymore. (laughs) (laughs) He had had the same conversation with me on the telephone before he walked into your (laughs) hotel room. (laughs) And I loved him even more for for telling me. Um, But uh, for those listeners who are not very familiar at all with Wazowski, unfortunately, he passed away. He smoked more cigarettes than he should have and died died of cancer a few years ago and left a legacy that um, if you had anything to do with the, the the world of jazz or freeform music, you would have seen Jackie as a, as a hero. Um, we mo- should move on because it gets a bit sad okay. with him. Trafalgar Studios? Yeah, uh, 73, uh, myself and a gentleman by the name of John Zalaika 
decided that we were going to build a recording studio. So we uh, we found a building in Annandale, a rundown old uh, ex. It wasn't really. They didn't make movies there. He made commercials, so it was an old film studio, and we found that at a ridiculously low price. Um, my father very reluctantly and very gratefully gave me the deposit on the place. I think it cost us like thirty-five thousand dollars for the building, which is like ludicrous if you know Annandale in Sydney today. Yeah, and. Um, we, so we put down, I think we put down three and a half, four thousand dollars on the building, and started soundproofing it. it had a sixteen-track Fostex quarter-inch tape recorder, a couple of microphones, and we started um, bringing in bands and recording them. Uh, it slowly grew. Later, we were joined by John Sayers, who was a, a legendary um, engineer from the sixties. He'd, he'd done. Uh, the real thing for Russell Morris and Brian Cadd and uh, Spectrum, a lot of the Australian 60s bands. And that was followed by uh, Michael McMartin, who went on to uh, manage the Hoodoo Gurus and uh, run the uh, music managers forum, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And um, so by the the mid-70s, we had a pretty thriving studio business. I, I would have thought it was the centre of the music business's recording sphere in Sydney in those days. More it, than it, it was. It, it was the only uh, in, independent studio in Sydney that was focused completely on rock and roll. We did no commercials, no advertising in those days. It was purely mu- uh, band music. So were you you were running the studio... I was running the studio. As, as well as producing. Well, no, I hadn't started to produce yet. Uh, my hands were full just uh, trying to market the studio and get work and run the day-to-day operations. I, at that point of time, hadn't actually done anything professionally as a producer. I I was looking, dropping in on sessions and learning all that I could. Uh, I'd finish finish my office work about four o'clock and at midnight I was still in the studio observing people like John Sayers and Peter Walker and and engineers that were working there and pretty much just observing and learning learning the ropes and these guys were all really in that this is still the early to mid 70s early 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 to mid 70s and they, um, they're all and continue to be productive legends at the yes time, especially john says he was an amaz- amazing engineer with already by then a, a huge track record he'd come out of albert's yeah. studios in melbourne so he was pretty much our um, draw card for bands. So in, really at Trafalgar, I mean, you can't say you didn't cross the genres, could, do you? Cause it no, was, we did everything. Yeah. So, we, we did everything. So tell me, tell, tell me about some of these performers that you, or these performers, wrong, bad, bad word, Pete, the, the, the layers of, you know, you, got a, you had Radio Birdman in there. But well, Radio was Birdman was late, later. That was the late 70s by the time Radio, Radio Birdman came along. But we had bands like the Dingoes, yeah. um, Greg Snedden Band. The drummer. Uh, he was the drummer, wasn't he? The drummer from Greg Snedden Band went on to play with Colin Hay and Men at Work. Right. And, and we had uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Paul Brand, who was a, a kind of country singer. Right. Um, it, it was a real mishmash of, of artists. Um, then around 75, 76, 
the whole industry started to get a little bit sophisticated and uh, <laughs> the, the, the level of... Um, you mean the record contract at that stage? The record contract, yeah. The, rec- the, the industry started to get a little bit sophisticated and we started to uh, get people through that actually paid their studio bills, which was... <laughs> A really miracle. unusual. Well, that wouldn't have been the musician. That would have been the record. That company would have been the record was. company. Well, we had we had. It's funny with Trafalgar, and and even in a funny way reflected my own career. We always attracted the outsiders. We always seemed to attract the long shots, yeah. and and the startups and people like that would be coming through our doors. Well, you were friendly, Charlie. That that's the the the, rec, the that record studio. Musicians felt home that, that they were welcomed. Well, we built it for musicians. You know, we we um, we we that's what it was built for. We I was uh, very concerned to have a comfortable environment and a f- very free feeling environment for them, a non intimidating one. And I think they they liked that. And also, I, I mean, I love the music and I love musicians. So you know, I, I was a soft touch. <laughs> So when did you? Who, who was your first All right, well, production? It, it, job? It's it's a funny story. Uh, Glenn A. Baker and Old Fifty Five. Right. So Glenn A. Baker came uh, had this idea for this fifties revival band called Old Fifty Five, and he couldn't give the idea away. So he decided he was going to have a go at seeing if he can get a record made. So Glenn turned up at Trafalgar and approached John Sayers and myself with an offer to, you know, he'll cut us in on the deal if we give him some free studio time and he wanted John Sayers to produce. And John Sayers looked at him and said, look, you know, the free studio time you have to talk to Charles about, but I'm not interested in producing. And Glenn said, well, who do you think I should get? And John looked at me and looked at Glenn Baker and said, why don't you ask Charles to produce? And Glenn Baker looked at me and said, what have you produced before? And I said, nothing. And he said, perfect, you're on. <laughs> and, that, and that was my first job. And you, we record- your, your first my job? My first job. Was on the prowl? On, no, my first job was Diana. We did a cover of the Paul Anker song. Right. And we finished it and took it to Michael Gadinsky, who just thought it was stupid, but what the hell, let's have a go. Right. He put it out and we got a top 40 hit, so he put us into the studio and said, go do an album. And the album turned into Take It Greasy and that's where On The Prowl came from. Right. So just for those that weren't there at the time, how many, how many albums did that sell in the end? Uh, about 170,000. Yeah, they became a major that Australian recording I, I mean, this is 1976 and... 170,000 album sales was Huge. phenomenal in Australia. Huge. And, and I think we were about half a year ahead of Skyhooks with those kind of sales. And it really, um, it, 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 was, it was amazing. We did the whole album in seven days. It's amazing. Mind you, it's the world's turned full circle because that's probably what the time it takes these days to do. You know, it takes you about seven days to get going these days <laughs> to get the drum sound right. Yeah, re- re- reinstall everything on the computer. <laughs> so then the adventure really starts for you, doesn't it? Because yes, all fifty-five commences it. But well, then, well, it was really it was really strange because this was like seventy-six through seventy-eight. I did three uh, artists in a row. I did. Um, Old 55, then I did Radio Birdman, 
and then I did air supply. Oh. And it was like just looking at that resume, people would just scratch their heads. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't find three more diverse no. acts. And I did those three back to back. Well, that was the the, the air supply album because uh, Graham and Russell were really um, that. Did they come to you or did the, no? Their I, I was I was approached by a gentleman called Tony Hogarth Bless from him. from Wizard Records, right? And he, um, you know, pretty much uh, Air Supply were on their last legs. They'd done this their stint with Sony, and uh, they'd been dropped. And this was for them a do or die record. Uh, Tony Hogarth thought that they needed something out of the box, and he looked at he looked at me having done uh, old fifty five and then Radio Birdman, and he thought that's pretty out of the box. <laughs> Go and give it a try, and and we went and we did um, Lost in Love, and that just resurrected them worldwide. Well, it turned them into a global yeah recording act. Yes, and they. A gentle conversation to have each other. So they, they, uh, Wizard Records was owned by Robbie Porter, and that album was taken to America and re-released through Arista, if yes. I remember, through Clive. Yes. And a whole bunch of other people decided that they wanted to take credit for that record. Well, it, it it was unfortunate when the record was released in America. My name wasn't even on the on the label. Um, uh. Today. Uh, what they did to that record today would be considered a remix. Right. So they basically just mixed, remixed the track that I'd recorded. Right. But they decided that they were, were the producers. So we already have a, a, a theme. And bear in mind, show. Lost in Love was a country and western record when I made it. Oh, really? It was a country and western song. Right. And written by Graham. Written by Graham. Right. And we, we, uh, in the studio, I, I changed it. And I remember the band went on tour, and when they came back and I played it to them, at the end of the playback, Graham just stood up and left the control room. And I turned to Russell and I said, what's wrong? And Russell said, he doesn't like it. And I said, what's wrong with it? And Russell said, I don't know, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> well, composers always Composers are like that. I mean, I, I, I do that to... A, I've done that in my career to a lot of composers. Right. Offended the living daylights out. Offended the living daylights out. It's my job. <laughs> A good producer. Um, so, uh, back slightly one step because again, these these moments of where things interconnect. So, uh, Graham and Russell uh, from Air Supply were in Jesus Christ Superstar, correct? With John English and Marsha Hines and John Paul Young and Stevie Wright from the Easy, from, formerly of the Easy Beats, and Tony Hogarth, of course, ran a record label for Robbie Porter. Uh, Robbie G, if you go back to the fifties, who um, who was living in America at the time, but but the Marsha also recorded for yes, Marsha also, which is where I I'd made my connection because yeah. Marsha I think had done her first album yeah. at my studio by the time Air yeah. Supply came yeah, along. Correct, Marsha Shines, that's right. So then, the interconnect here still seems to me to be that the song. Is, is that, were you... Yeah, it's all that, about the song for me. Yeah. Is that I, how it was for you then? It was always like that for me. I I, I, I worked with some, uh, I didn't work with, I never worked with great bands. I always worked with great songwriters. Yeah. And that's always what attracted me. I, I always felt that if I had a great song, 
anything else was fixable. But if I had a great band that didn't have a great song, it was pointless. So with a band like Radio Birdman, who were legendary for thrash, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, really they, 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 um, they were, again, one of the outsiders. We, they, they won a Battle of the Bands contest for a, a rock magazine called Ram. Oh, yeah. Anthony O'Grady. Anthony O'Grady. And uh, the first prize was a recording time in a recording studio. And bless you, there comes Uncle Charles and Trafalgar Studios. Correct. And um, I just loved the band. And uh, and it wasn't so much even that I loved the band. I really did like their songs. Mm. And they were, they were very charismatic and they were very different. And But, you know, they, they were... I mean, this is an era of hush and sherbet and mm. glam rock, and these guys are... are yeah, they weren't exactly a pop group, were no. they? No. Your experience in the studio, again, a band like All 55, which really was um, a, a, a sort of a recipe, a coming together, yes. a, which Glenn Baker uh, managed the process, um, that, that, that manufacturing of performers... Uh, and those songs were they covers? Most of the songs they were. They they started out to be completely covers, um, but Jim Manzi from the band emerged as a fine, songwriter. He was a fine songwriter, and he ended. And we ended up uh, prob- possibly doing about five or six originals in amongst all the covers. Right. So that on the prowl being one yeah. of them, of course. So then, the, the, when you've got a band, on one side you've got a band like Old Fifty Five, but then you've got Radio Birdman, where the level of their creativity, the level of, of their output, in some ways comes out of the personality of the band, and often that personality includes major conflict. Yes. Is it, was it your job to manage that conflict? Yes. Right. It was, it, I, I had to keep, amongst everything else, I had to keep the peace. Right. So when, when um, uh, it, it was just something you had to do. Yeah. Or, you, or you wouldn't get it done. And and do you think that if they could have stayed together, that Birdman would have been as big as yes, some I, of the contemporaries that were there at the time? I, I thought, I mean, I, I I saw the impact Radio Birdman had on stage to an audience, the, the charisma, and yeah. uh, it was unbelievable. Even even amongst naysayers who didn't like the music, they couldn't take their eyes off the stage. I thought that they could be um, a really huge band. Uh, however, I was also had my eyes wide open. Uh, the main guy in the band, Dennis Tech, uh, never made uh, any bone about it. He was going to be a doctor. Yeah, he was at St Vincent's, wasn't he? Yeah. So he was. So for him, Radio Birdman was a hobby. Yeah. That I, I even when Seymour Stein from Sire Records signed them. I said, look, Seymour, you've got to understand this is a weekend band. And Seymour said, ah, I'll get them to New York because they'll, they'll never be the same again. But he totally underestimated Dennis, who's a very strong personality. And he was always going to be a doctor and he was determined that he would be both a doctor and a musician. And a guitar player. And, of course, uh, you, can't, you, know, you can't split your commitment if you're going to be yeah. one of the greats. So then... We roll. Let's roll together through this because Trafalgar now, in in my eyes, in those days, sort of became the centre of the universe in some ways. Um, 
I mean, there are other recording studios of some significance around Paradise and others, but EMI, but the 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 interesting music always seemed to come out of your place. It it did. We we um, John Sayers left. John both John Sayers and John Zalika left us in the late seventies. They were gone by the time um, I did Air Supply. Um, they went on to other things, and uh, but the, but the. Uh, the outsiders didn't stop coming. Uh, I rem- uh, Cold Chisel slept on the floor of my studio when they came from Adelaide to do demos for their, to try and get a deal. They, they actually slept on the floor of the studio and they did their demos there, which got them their Warner Brothers deal. Um, uh, Paul Kelly, we gave him uh, a, r- a really ridiculous deal if he worked from midnight to dawn and he cut his gossip double album there, which he could not have done at normal studio rates. I think I gave it to him for like next to nothing, but he would turn up at midnight every night and work till dawn and they did gossip there. There's a songwriter. Um, Midnight Oil did their first EP and album in my studio. Again, um, because I gave their record company M7 Records, if you remember M7 Records. Uh, I gave them an incredible deal to make to make it possible. Right. So they they did their debut work at my studio. The, the, you know the out the freaks kept coming. <laughs> so are you comfortable talking about music as a commercial art form? It is a commercial art form. It, well, it doesn't have to be, mm. but if you sign a record contract, you 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 are in essence saying, "I want to be exposed." Mm. So the, it, the talented people, the, the, the people that have made these records with you, those that have gone on, have they got, uh, is there, a, is there a, a, any piece of their character that you think consistently is shared by all of them? Is there something in, in, in their makeup that, that takes them past the point of, the, of that first record? Oh, that, yeah, ego. Really? They, 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 they feel that what they do is very, very good, and better than any what anybody else does. Yeah. If you don't have that ego, if you if you are insecure, if you second guess yourself, right. that's not a good thing to have as a creative person. Because the business will destroy you. Uh, the, the business world will destroy you if they take you somewhere you shouldn't go. But that's about being able to say no, isn't it, as well as yes? It is. Being, it's about being able to say no. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I know of one act that I did and I told the manager that, in my opinion, he should hide them and let the music speak for itself because they were raw. And, you know, he couldn't take that advice. He had them jumping out of aeroplanes into shopping centres. And they had a, they had a, at the time they had a top 20 single... After he exposed them, everything stopped. <laughs> I've had that happen to me twice. I had another band from Western Australia. Uh, we had a top 20 single nationally. Uh, the band went on countdown, and the next Monday, sales stopped. Oh, that's unusual. Well, it is. I mean, I'll tell you a funny story about Mr. John Woodruff, who's also a mutual friend of ours. When we were trying to get a cover for the first Savage Garden record, those 
kids also were quite young and raw and inexperienced and John couldn't come up with a photograph that he was happy with. He said they don't they don't look the part and and the record co- and the record company's going, We've got to get this record out, you know? So John put a garden gnome on the cover. <laughs> He see he did the right thing. And it worked. He did the right thing. He didn't put them in the spotlight personally before they were personally capable of dealing with it. Record producer Charles Fisher. In a moment, Charles tells Peter about the production process, what it takes to make a hit record, his time out of the business, and how two boys from Brisbane, Savage Garden, brought him back into the business in a big way. So here you are, the producer on one side of the control room panel, and there inside in that studio are the, the singer with some backing musicians or there's a band, four or five people, and in layers you're recording them. When does, when does it usually twig on you that it's going to work? Is it before you start? Uh, usually. Yeah. Usually, I, I have a script before I shoot the film. Right. I mean, I, I, the song is everything for me. So I know that I've got a good song. And I know if I dress it correctly and record it correctly, it could work. Hmm. Um, but I'm also aware that it's not just the song that's going to make it work. Hmm. And today's climate, that is even more apparent because, you know, radio is no longer the sole arbiter of what's popular and what's not. And marketing yourself as an artist has become so different now. So I I used to worry about when I had a great song and I'd look and the manager, in in my humble opinion, the manager was clueless or there was no manager, I would get very worried. I'm doing it right now. I'm working with this girl... We've made, we've made a record. I'm just about finished it. And she said, are you, are you going to send it to the record companies? And I said, no, I think we should find a manager first. Because mm. really the, the thing to understand as well from my point of view is at that stage you were an interface into the music business. You, you were, I mean, no one didn't know Trafalgar, no one didn't know Charles Fisher. And to be a producer as well as the owner of a, of a, a recording studio was actually... A really big job. It, it was, and it was pretty unique too for its day. Not, yeah. not so much now, but for its day, it was. Uh, you know, ha- having said that, uh, I always, I always felt like an outsider. You know, I would go to Aria Awards and APRA Awards and things like that, and I would always feel like an. I saw six of my bands pick up Aria Awards for albums of the year. I never got a mention. You know, so I, I. I also always felt like a bit of an outsider. Is that not one of the burdens of being the record producer? I think sometimes? it. I think it's one of the burdens of being a pop record producer, and I love pop. Yeah. So I remember one very well known. After what about me? I remember one very well known uh, Australian producer with a lot of credibility at the time, coming up to me in the corridors of EMI Studios in Sydney, saying, "How could you make a record like that?" I. I could not face my friends if I made a record like that. And I was gobsmacked. Yeah. Now, part of me was hurt yeah. and part of me was gobsmacked that you could denigrate 
I looked at him and said, you know, I've got to be honest with you, you're not denigrating me, you're telling me that 100,000 people who bought that song are basically idiots. And that, that I, see, I can't buy that. See, you know, uh, that, that, you know the, what's the old adage of never, under, never under mis- and underestimate the taste of the American public? Hmm. I don't buy that. Look, I, 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 was a, I was a visitor to Countdown a lot, and when William Shakespeare turned up with My Little Girl, and, and we all sat in the canteen sniggering, and then somebody pointed out that George and Harry had produced the song. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we all had to st- sit, stand right. up and salute. Everybody has to do it. I Everybody mean, it's, has. It, it's it, it, a, it's it, a look, journey, isn't it? If, if I, I honestly believe that if you make a piece of work and a lot of people have taken their hard-earned money and bought it because it makes them happy, mm. you have no right to denigrate it. Yeah, quite. And, and you know, Love is in the Air is hardly a rock and roll song. Hardly a rock and roll song. No. So you close the studio. Close the studio. I started to feel like a delicatessen owner. I mean, the, the the reality is that a recording studio is a service industry, and you do do get to a point where you're just tired of the clients complaining yeah. and trying to make them happy. Yeah. And it started to feel a bit like an albatross to me, and uh, I thought it was time to move on. I moved nowhere. <laughs> I didn't work for two and a half, three years. Really? Yeah, I was I was told by the powers of be that I'm too old. I was in my late 40s by then, right? I'm too old to be a producer of pop records. And then two boys from Queensland shopped their demos to a very disinterested recording industry in Sydney. Correct. And eventually came face-to-face with the bloke who had previously managed the angels and the baby animals. Correct. Who, who was at the time thinking, do I really want to be in this business well, anymore? He, he was, he, it's funny, he was in the same place as me because he started to think that management is not yeah. where it's at. So, you know, I'm the, I'm the observer in this saying that all of a sudden through serendipity, two, two of the people that I think in the history of the business will be always perceived as the guys who could pick a hit record, meaning you and John Woodruff, got together. Yep. And history got made. It's it's really it's really funny. I first encountered John Woodruff uh, in the late 70s when they started Dirty Pool and they were thinking of doing a label. And so for, could, our, for our listeners, Dirty Pool was an agency that was set up by the managers of Cold Chisel, Ice House... The Angels, and I can't think if there was another one, but the the main th- re- reason they did it was because the business was dominated by Michael Gudinski's premier uh, premier artists, and if you worked in a in a venue, whether you had a number one record or not, you had to go through those guys to get into these places. And their the bands that Dirty Pool had, Chisel, the Angels, that were at the time the biggest the bands biggest in the country. Bands. So the deal that the, the deal that these guys set up, and you have to understand how it all worked, was instead of walking in and saying, "Okay, I want twenty thousand dollars, fifteen thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars to do the job," dirty pool guys would say, "We'll take a five thousand dollar guarantee, 
and then we'll take the door. Whatever right. comes through the door, we'll take, and you, you get the bar. So suddenly these public, publicans were going, oh, that's not a bad deal, is it? I don't have to risk a thing. Oh, and by the way, we'll help you do the PR and the marketing and the publicity, and we'll make sure the street posters go up. And all of a sudden... Colchester was making 40 grand at the Narrabeen Hotel. They they revolutionised the way. They were smart as whips. Ray Hearn, John Woodruff and Uh, uh, Rod Rod Willis. Rod Willis, the beloved original manager of Colchester. Yep. So... Um, so, so I, Woody I, turns up at your front door? No, I, Woody, Woody calls me on the telephone and asks me to come into Dirty Pool. He's got a proposition for me. They wanted to start a label. Uh, of course, they didn't want to have to pay for recording studio time, so you know they were looking to get my studio somehow involved, right? Right, but you didn't have a studio anymore. Uh, no, this is, seven, this is the late 70s. The first, oh, I beg your pardon. Sorry. The, first, the first time I met Woody. Right. And I just finished there. Air, air supply had like broken all over the world, and they spoke to me about their concept. And then Woodruff looked at me and said, "However, I do want to point out we are not interested at all in making records like Air Supply," which I thought, which I reminded him of in the late '90s when, you know, in a funny way, he had he had the, the next Air Supply. He had the next Air Supply. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so oh, w- the the band sent out all these tapes. Woody. They got rejected by everyone except Woody. Woody thought there was something there. So Woodruff thought, okay, I'm going to go and shop it. But Woody also hit brick walls. Nobody, nobody was interested. So he was at the end of his tether and he didn't know what to do and I was flat on my bum. I wasn't working. And our mutual friend at, the point, at that point was Michael McMartin. So Michael McMartin said to Woodruff, look, why don't you talk to Charles? He's not doing anything and... You know, he's done a couple of these spec things before. See what he thinks. So Woody called me in and I listened to the stuff and I thought it was great, and especially especially this one song, which actually ended up being the only song on that original demo that he, Woody played me that we recorded. To the Moon and Back? To the Moon and Back. My wife's favourite song of all time. My, I, it blew me away, that song. And, and we, I actually I heard five songs. I didn't record any of the <laughs> others except that one. Literally, people still turn the radio up to full volume to hear that yeah, song. Yeah, I, I love that song. So uh, I, I said to Woody, look, you know, I, I love this song, To the Moon and Back. Let's give it a shot. Woody said, great. And I remember him saying, and I remember saying, uh, you know, we, let's let's do do a couple of tracks and see what happens. So um, he spoke to the boys in Brisbane. They had known of my track record because da- Darren was a researcher. He knew the Australian history inside out, so he knew where I was coming from. I flew up to Brisbane. We met at Daniel's parents' house, and we got on okay. There was a good vibe between us. Mm-hmm. And I came back to Sydney and uh, said to Woody, okay, let's have a go. And I had sold Trafalgar at that point, except... I kept my 24-track tape recorder, which was sitting in my hallway, and I kept a microphone and a preamp, and that's all I had. And I said, send them to the house and we'll, we'll make a record. It's in Rose Bay? It's in Rose Bay. So we made the whole album in my house <laughs> with one microphone. Does everybody know that story? Is I, that- I don't know. I've, t- I've told it a couple of times. I, I, don't oh. know if it, I don't know if it registers to people what it means to... 
I remember when when it was number one in Billboard, and they asked me to give them studio details, and I wrote, uh, you know, that I did it in my living room. Yeah. The Billboard guys rang me from America, and at that point in time, home recording was not fashionable. Mm. The guy from Billboard rang me up and said, "Look, I, I, I can't put in the paper that you recorded this at home, living and room studios in, in my living room." And I said, "All right, well then, can you put down home studio or project studio or something like that?" And he went, "I can do that." And I said, "Then put that down." Yeah. But I did it in my living room. I did it. In, the whole thing was done in a room smaller than the one we're sitting in. In part two of Peter Ricks' conversation with a record producer known as the Song Doctor, Charles Fisher, they talk about Charles's 10 years of producing in the US, the arrival of digital audio and production, and what the landscape looks like for a record producer now. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.